Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Dick's 1972 novel, We Can Build You, uh, originally written in, in the early 1960s, around the time that he wrote The Man in the High Castle and, and Game Players of Titan. Um, it actually feels a lot more like his, his mainstream novels that I've been saying. There's not that much science fiction. It's really about a, a small businessman, you know, builds a robot and and or at least his company builds a robot he doesn't build much of anything the narrator doesn't anyways and then he falls in love with a girl uh who's his who's mentally ill and, and that's that's essentially the story and we'll see where it goes um what's essentially happened in the first half of the novel you can go back to the earlier episodes to listen to this but essentially what happens is is they invent uh two prototypes of of this simulacrum one is based on edwin stanton the other is based on abraham lincoln so these are two civil war bots essentially and there's different ideas of what to do with them uh, there's the idea to refight the civil war as kind of a national catharsis and to get government contracts there's also the idea of selling it to a big businessman barrows barrows is in seattle and he's dealing with real estate and land development and he he's going he would use androids to to push up to inflate the housing market on the off-world colonies that are just beginning at this point in the story so where he left off is where negotiations with Barrows have, have begun. The kind of the other major plot line has to do with Lewis's relate, growing relationship with Pris, his his business partner's daughter. Her name is Fris, Pris Frauenzimmer, uh, taking a different name for herself. Her, her father's name is Maury Rock. Um, and she's just got out of a mental asylum, but, you know, got run by the state. But she's very talented and she helped develop the, the simulacrums. And over time, he's... You know, despite her having serious mental problems, being cruel, being a schizoid, not being able to feel emotion, she, Lewis, Rose, and our narrator falls, falls in love with her. So chapter 10 picks up really with uh, the negotiations with Barrows, who has arrived, and, and they want to uh, basically find a way to sell it to them or to find out what they can get out of them. But, but um, Louis, Louis, our, Louis, our narrator, I don't know if it's Louis or Louis, um, I think I said both, but we'll go with, try to go with Louis. Um, Louis believes that Barrows is a fraud. I talked a little bit about this last time, and that his whole business empire is kind of built on fraudulent enterprises. Kind of like he's essentially a glorified slumlord. And, um, you know, if you take kind of the Georgian economics view, the Henry George economic view, that, that the rentier class is basically the, the parasitic class. Uh, if you remember from your history... Uh, Henry George believed in there should just be a single tax on, on the rentier class, on, the, on rents, land rents in particular, but also, I guess, now we have housing rents. But he was right, he was mostly thinking land rents, because they're not creative, they're the one class that doesn't produce anything, so you shouldn't tax income, you should tax, you know, basically these parasitic, um, in, you know, industries, and that's essentially what Barrows is, that's what uh, Louis thinks, and Louis just wants to, or Barrows just wants to use these androids to artificially inflate the market even more so um now 
the other th- problem here is that the Stanton bot had already gone to see Barrows and met with him. And that's one reason Barrows came to see them is he was impressed by them. So there's a concern that he's going to try to steal their technology. So they think they need to rush along and get patents for these simulacrums just in case Barrows really has the intention to steal their, their technology from them. Um, they also decided to shut down the Lincoln for the same reason as, as kind of a part of their security. Now, Louis, he's thinking, and he doesn't contribute that much in this novel and this business, it seems, but he, his major contribution here is that maybe they shouldn't deal with government and these big players. Instead, just try to go directly into the retail market, sell it directly to the people. You know, there's, there's a need for household robots and androids. And that's where they should go, he thinks. Um, so... Um, now, after this conversation, Pris and Louis go to the motel that Louis is staying at, and we have a very, very long conversation where they discuss sex. Essentially, the sexual tension between this couple is pretty high, especially Louis' attraction to Pris, and she uses her own strategy of, of, of kind of humiliation and berating him to try to talk him into sex, and you know he resists. They, they end up not having sex, but it's a, it's a pretty long conversation where they go back and forth. Um, about what sex sort of means to each of them. And there's a lot of concern among Louis that sex with someone like uh, Pris would essentially be like having sex with a robot who's observing the whole thing kind of almost from a third eye. Now, Pris sees these relationships that she's involved with, whether it's with Louis or with Barrows or even the company with Barrows as hierarchical and relationships of domination and power. And she even talks about when they shut off the Lincoln, how that's like a power trip for Pris. She said, I got a very enjoyable sense of power and ultimate power. We gave it life and then we took that life right back. Snap. As easy as that. But the moral burden doesn't rest on us anyhow. It rests on Sam Barrows. And he wouldn't have had a twinge. He would have gotten a big kick out of it. Look at the strength there, Louis. We really wish we were at the same the same way. I don't regret turning it off. I regret being emotionally upset. I disgust myself at being what I am. No wonder I'm down here with the rest of you and Sam Barron's is up at the top. You can see the difference between him and us. It's so clear. Um, now, she, Pris is diagnosed as a schizoid, meaning she's not capable of basic human emotions or, or empathy. And she's arguing here that she has too much empathy, actually, which is hard to really see demonstrated in the text at all. Um, now, we, we got to bear in mind that Louis is not a reliable narrator. And, you know, a lot of these interactions he has with Pris might not even be real, especially the one-on-one conversations he has with her. They might fully be figments of his, of his delusional imagination. And this could just be one of them. Um, but really, when they start getting into the discussion about, about preparing to have sex and, 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 and if they're going to go through with it, you know, Louis brings up just how odd it is to have sex with someone like Pris, essentially saying it'd almost be like doing it with a, with a robot. Um, he says, like, no, I won't screw you because you're only detached. You're not only detached, you're brutal. And not just with me, but with yourself, with that physical body you despise and claim isn't you. Don't you remember that dis- discussion between Lincoln, the Lincoln simulacrum, I mean, and Barrows and Blunk? An animal is close to being a man, and both are made of the flesh of blood. That's not, that's what you're trying not to be. And she, her response is kind of interesting. It goes back to a theme I've been hinting at throughout this book, and that is that mental illness is just sort of the, the common status or the, the emerging as the common status of all, of all humanity. Pris's response is, what do you expect? Essentially, schiz, being a schizoid is the ailment of the 20th century, the way hysteria was the ailment of the 19th century. And I'm just with the times. 
and that that's who you know that's who I am right and Louis Rosen not being mentally ill at least apparently at this point is is old-fashioned now they they get through the night without without having sex to do something else they get some like um, food um, now the next morning though they kind of continue on with these negotiations with with the Barrows company and they run into Blunk who's the lawyer for Barrows they run into Barrows they also meet Stanton who had, who's back so now kind of all the players are here and the, the showdown between Barrows and Rosen and Rock Associates is going to is going to continue and that brings us to chapter 11 now, in Chapter 11, we learn that their immediate fear is that they've been sold out by, by Stanton, right? That if these, and, if these androids, these simulacrums, are capable of subjectivity, of their own ambitions, of, of their own idea of themselves, they're certainly capable of deception and capable of, of selling out their, their company. And Lincoln already gave the argument why we probably shouldn't enslave these, these simulacrum, that that may not even be legally possible if they do have a degree of subjectivity. You know, that's a kind of a plot line that gets dropped from the story when, when it gets to what, what Dick really wants to talk about, which is Louis Rosen's mental state. But um, it's still an interesting part of the, of the tale about the, the ethics of, of baking these things and, and using them the way they want to, these companies and individuals want to use them. So, in fact, um, Barrow's lawyers actually moves on this issue and challenges them on peonage laws, essentially accusing them of being engaged in, in slavery. Um, now, Barrows, though, his real plan here is not to buy the android, not to buy the simulacrum, not to buy rights to use them or to lease them or, or make a big order. He ends up saying, I'm just going to buy Massa's, you know, the, the Massa Associates company. I'm going to buy uh, Rosen and Rock's entire corporation. And and then they'll have it. So they're going to kind of do a hostile takeover of the company. And then they go to Lincoln, and this is one of the funny parts of it, how they use Lincoln in the story. It's kind of legal advice, and how Lincoln has to go to the library and research contemporary property law and stuff too, you know, to be able to be a good advisor. But he does it, and he, he has good ideas from time to time. And one of them here is that they should sell Massa to uh, Louis Rosen's father, who owns a big factory, and this would be so expensive, such a big purchase that Barrows wouldn't do it, and it would protect the company. So um, Pris resists this, though, because she is enamored with Barrow. She's in love with him, essentially, and she wants to, to work with him. And so she resists this choice. She's a voice in the company. Now, eventually, they go ahead and, and, and sell the company to Rosen's father to kind of merge those two entities together and protect them. But Pris decides to go with Barrows. And also Bob Bundy, the engineer, goes. So... While they are able to keep their company, they lose their main designer and their main engineer to, to barrels. So now maybe they can just make their own simulacrum. They won't need uh, Massa. Maury tries to intervene, stopping Pris, claiming that she's mentally ill, she's his daughter, she's a, a ward of the state. You know, she's actually under state's authority, so she can't just run off with, with barrels and become whatever, his, his worker or his mistress or whatever she has in mind so he tries to intervene with her mental state but it doesn't work um, so after this catastrophic turn of events where the company is essentially fractured by Pris's desire to go work with um, uh, Barrows you have this wonderful scene where it's Lincoln, Stanton, uh, Maury Rock and Louis Rosen all having coffee in a coffee shop and we see Maury's anger over losing his, his daughter and losing his designer 
Um, but they decide to move on, and that's a, kind of a message here in this part of the story is like, despite these horrible things happening, we need to move on as a company. We still design these androids, these simulacrum. We still have them. We can still make it profitable. We still need to just move forward and not think too much about, about Pris. If Louis would do the same thing, you know, we, his character would have a much different fate, we, would, we suspect. Um, but that's the decision they make kind of as a group is to move ahead. Lincoln will become their lawyer. Stanton will be kind of their business partner and advisor, which is the whole thing's very hilarious, of course. But, um, you know, they're, they're just going to move ahead and see what they can do. And basically, they're going to move to Louis' earlier plan, which was to sell the simulacrum directly to the consumer marketplace, sell it to the people directly. And they get the idea of using robot nannies. Like, this is something everyone needs. This is something that people are going to want. Now, we're in a world in which mental illness seems to be increasing, right? So I wonder if it's the best idea to um, <laughs> to give people robot nannies when you already have an ex explosion of mental illness. But uh, for better or for worse, that's the decision that this company goes into, that we're going to sell robot nannies. Now, in the beginning of Chapter 12, they actually do a shout-out to Philip K. Dick's story, Nanny. They don't uh, mention it by, by name. But um, Maury says he picked up a science fiction magazine called Thriller and Wonder Stories, and in it was a story about robot attendants who protected children like huge mechanical dogs. They were called nannies, no doubt after the pooch and Peter Pan. And, you know, if you read that story... Uh, it's not just about robotic nannies. It's about plant obsolescence, right? And you got you wonder if they're thinking along the same lines that if we can have a way to ensure that these nannies only last a few years or even a few months, we'll get people to keep buying them. But in the original story, they would actually fight at night, beat each other up at night, and and that would be the way you would be forced to replace them every once in a while. So it's kind of worked into the design of them that they would beat up other nannies. Um, so this is a little Easter egg to one of Dick's earlier, earlier stories. Now, um, there's a lot of anxiety about Pris among our characters, but again, there's this insistence that they move on and, 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 you know, find a place for their product, try to make money, try to salvage the situation. And then there's a the question, how much can Barrows really gain from having Pris at, at all? Will, you know, she seems to be a good designer, but she's not the greatest engineer. And, and can just the two of them, Bob Bundy and Pris, design something as good as the Lincoln robot? They're, they're, they're not sure that Barrow's able to run with it, but he might be able to develop something. Um, so then I think it's Maury gets the idea, like, why not let's connect the Civil War theme that we're working on with the nanny. We'll have Civil War nannies. There's such nostalgia for the Civil War that the idea was people would actually then have nannies that were in the blue and the gray uniforms of the Union and the Confederacy. And they'd be like Union soldiers who also were robotic nannies. Seems kind of a stupid idea to me. Um, but they come up with this, and Louis eventually says that that's a dumb idea. But they go with it anyways. They eventually, they even talk to Stanton at some point. And Stanton says, well, I'll, I'll do this, but we're not going to have any Confederate ones. We're not going to have, like, the bad guys on it. We're not going to make bad nannies. Like, the Confederate ones, we're going to stick with the, the Union. Uh, so, yeah, Louis just thinks it's a, it's a bit of a crazy idea. And he, and he thinks it's kind of banal, almost. <clears throat> And again, if you want to mine this for evidence that maybe Louis is not a reliable narrator and he's just, you know, it almost is so preposterous that you want to think it's, it's maybe part of a dream. And Louis even says this here uh, about this idea. 
you know, we're not going to do it because we're not crazy. We're sober and sane. We're not like your daughter. We're not like Barrows. Isn't that a fact? You mean you can't feel it? The lack of that here in this house? Some lunatic clacking, clacking away at some monstrous nutty project until all hours? Maybe leaving that half done right in the middle and going on to do something else equally as nutty? So he's when he hears this idea, he immediately thinks of this is like something a crazy person like Chris would, would design. We're not like that. But, you know, maybe in reality these, these you know, this is all at this point a figment of, of Louise psychosis. So um, now they they do watch out for Pris. They try to look, you know, they look at like the Seattle newspapers and try to keep an eye on, on Pris. And they eventually find her. She's taken on a new name. And, you know, like she, what's that new name she takes? Let me find it. Pristine Womankind. So instead of Pris Frauenzimmer, she goes with Pristine Womankind. And they, they got pictures of her. So they're clear it's her. And she's essentially being groomed as a movie star and Barrows is using his power and reputation to get her into uh, becoming a celebrity. He, she also seems to be his mistress um, at the time and there's even a, a, a mention of the fact that one way that people kind of move up is that they'll even like marry the president. That's kind of a celebrity thing to do is you marry the president maybe for a few weeks or even just a few days and, and that's a way you kind of move up in the, in the social hierarchy of, of, of celebrity dome. And there's a concern that maybe she'll end up marrying, even marrying the president. But for now, it seems that Pris is just living as Barrow's mistress and then using his clout to get uh, gigs and, and different recognitions. She's trying to kind of move into show business is what, what's happening here. Um, now, again, they, they decide what to do. And Maury realizes there's not much he can do, that she's an adult, that, that she's probably had sex. It's not that it's not going to be her first time she had sex. And, and even if they try to take her back, unless she wants to come back, Barrows has the legal means to thwart any effort, right? In fact, they, they even say that he could arrange her to be married to a friend or something, and then and she would still live as Barrows' mistress, but there would be no way they would get her back. So they're basically outclassed by the, the legal power of, of Barrows. So they just said, let's go on. And they go along with the plan to develop the Civil War nannies. But at the same time, despite saying, we're going to move on with this, Louis decides that he's going to rescue Pris. So he comes up with a plan, he gets a gun, and he, go, he has a plan to go to Seattle um, and kill Barrows and, and bring Pierce back with him. So um, that's where chapter 12 ends with that, that decision that he's going to, to, to save Pris. So chapter 13 picks up with uh, Rose, uh, Louis Rosen already in, you know, arriving in Seattle. And Seattle's described a bit here like a slum. And I don't know what Seattle was like in the 60s. You know, Dick probably visited it. I think he, he did spend some time in the Pacific Northwest. So maybe he was there. It's, it's presented as kind of essentially a slummy city that's, that's like a, inherited most of his architecture from the 19th century, but it's never really been modernized, maybe except for a facade. And it's, a, it's an interesting kind of window into maybe Dick's views of urban landscapes. Um, it's, it's, it's an issue he didn't develop as much as I would have liked. He, he talks you know, from time to time about cities and urban planning stuff. Not so much later in his career, so in a lot of his early stories. But I like what he does here with uh, Seattle. 
Quote, it's an old seaport town built on hills with windy canyon type streets. Nothing is modern except the public library, and in the slum parts you'll see a cobblestone and red brick, like parts of Pocatello, Idaho. The slums extend for miles and are rat infested. In the center of Seattle, there is a prosperous, genuine city-like shopping area built near one of the two great one or one of the one or two great old hotels, such as the Olympus. The wind blows in from Canada, and when a Boeing 900 sets down in the SeaTac airfield, you catch a glimpse of the mountains of origin. They're frightening. End quote. So, yeah, I, I think it's just a little window into it. I don't know if that's actually what Seattle was like in, in, in those times. I, I don't think it's what it's like now. I mean, I, I've heard it's kind of a nice place now. But who knows? I've, I've never been. The closest I got was, was um, Portland, Oregon once. When I lived in Eugene. Actually, I maybe got closer, but it was somewhere else in Washington State. I never went to Seattle. So he checks into a hotel, and he just sort of hangs out there. You know, and thinks of his plan, and he doesn't really have a very clear plan. It's just kind of find Rosen, threaten him, kill him, get Pris back. But he ponders maybe just, you know, maybe he'll just hang out here at the hotel and you know shop and and live that kind of life. Um, but eventually, he 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 takes the only real plan he has is to call Barrows and try to threaten him on the phone. And so he does call Barrows, and he can't get through. And then most of this chapter thirteen from this point on is just phone calls back and forth, different people. So we get calls from Maury. Maury's telling him, "You got to come back. This is crazy. You're you're nuts." He even says you're mentally ill, and you know you need help. Uh, he gets a call from Doctor Horbitsky, Horbitsky, who is like Pris's old doctor, and he's is able to confess his love for Pris on the phone with the doctor. But the doctor's kind of like, "Well, maybe you gotta." Give up on this plan. Finally, though, he reaches Barrows, and he gets hung up on by Barrows a few times, but he keeps calling him back, like kind of like a crazy mental patient, which obviously is, is what he is. But he's got all these weird threats, and so at this point, Louis Rosen has basically descended into a nut, you know, with a gun, uh, calling up a perceived enemy and threatening him. And it, you know, it's like, yeah, I guess Barrows is a bit shady, and he did sort of steal Pris from them, but you know, she's an adult, right? She was she was eighteen. And, and could do what she wanted. Um, Barrows even then directs Louis to get mental health care. So it seems to the degree that these phone calls reflect a reliable narration, or at least the conversation, if not the internal monologue of, of Louis Rosen. You know, everyone he talks to is, is telling him that he is mentally ill at this point. Um, he even then eventually calls Pris and, and using her, you know, that pristine womankind, getting, using her name to get her number, calls her, confesses his love to her, and she rejects him very brutally, which is a big jump from her previous conversations with Louis Rosen. Um, so it's, a, it's just an arbitrary change. Was the previous expressions of love that, or fondness, or at least the desire she had, or willingness to have sex with him, was this just all in his mind? And she always saw him as a bit of a creepy uncle. Uh, that could be, and that's that's sort of where I'm pushing to in my current reading of this novel. That most of these encounters between Pris and and Louis Rosen are are projected through a, a sick mind. Um, but yeah, that's how this chapter ends: is with this call to Pris and his confession of of loves and her very very short and and harsh rejection. Here, well, I'll read it because it's. Um, it's a good window in Dykes Priss's mentality. You prowl, you goofball, drop dead if you think you're going to horn it. I know all about what you're up to, you fat-assed, fart-faces, can't design your city Moroccan without me, can you? So you want me back? Well, go to hell. And if you try to come around here, I'll scream you're raping me or killing me, and you'll spend the rest of your life in jail. So think about that.
And then he says, I love you. And she says, go take a flying fling. Oh, here's Sam at the door. Get off the phone and don't call me Pris. My name's Pristine. Pristine womankind. Go back to Boise and dabble with your poor little stunted second-rate simulacrum. As a favor to me, please. Goodbye, you low-class, poor, ugly nothing. And please don't annoy me with your phone calls in the future. Save it for some greasy women who wants you to pot her. And if you can manage to get one of that greasy, ugly, low-class... And, and that's then she sort of hangs up on him. Yeah, she hangs up on them. So that's uh, the, the kind of the final words we get between Rosa and Pris. At least uh, at this part of the story, they have one more brief meeting later on. Um, so that's chapter thirteen. It's a fun chapter in the sense that it's it's a series of phone calls with different people, all of whom kind of come to the conclusion that he's he's creepy or nuts or you know they've got to screw loose. <clears throat> So chapter 14, he's, he's kind of given up on his plan then to, to get Pris back with force. And he's, um, you know, he calls for Lincoln to come and, and talk to him. And he, he's, while Lincoln is on his way, Louis researched Lincoln. And here we get kind of Louis having a bit of a delusion of grandeur almost. Um, so he studies all these books about, about Abraham Lincoln, especially Abraham Lincoln's youth and his courtship. And his, his lovers or his girlfriends he had before Mary Todd, the women he loved and wanted to marry before he married Mary Todd. And, and the conclusion of these authors, and I don't know enough about Lincoln's early life to, to say whether this is true or not, but according to these books that Louis is reading, Lincoln had basically nervous breakdowns and he was mentally ill in his youth as well. So, um, you know, this world that has more and more people kind of becoming mentally ill you know, the boundaries of that. Everyone is kind of crazy. And there's going to be a quote later on. I think we'll look at it in the next episode where we're told just how many people, like, you know, it's like one degree of separation. Everyone has one degree of separation from a mental institution. But it even kind of morphs into, a, like, over time, right? So, and I think there's something to this. Like, a historian from our era will often fall into the trap of, of anachronisms, right? Where they'll they'll project contemporary values or ideas onto the past, right? So we, we, we have an understanding of something like ADHD, right? So we say, oh, Leonardo da Vinci, ADHD explains why he didn't finish half of his projects, right? Or, um, you know, Ben Franklin, he had ADHD, right? I've, I've seen that done, that said as well, right? So you kind of project contemporary categories onto the past, right? And that's kind of the, more, the, the, the growth of this culture of mental illness. That, that Dick's describing here. But anyways, you know, he sees that Lincoln was crazy in love and I'm crazy in love. We have something in common with Lincoln. You know, I'm, I'm Lincoln is, is kind of what he comes away from this study uh, with. Um, he's really proud of this. He's, he's, it's really an epiphany for him that, that he is one and the same with the great Abraham Lincoln. Um, he goes further and he contrasts what he knows about Lincoln with with press at one point saying, I had a natural trust and liking for Lincoln. And that was certainly the opposite to what I felt towards Pris. There was something innately good and warm and human about him and a vulnerability. And I know by my own experience with Pris that the schizoid was not vulnerable. He was withdrawn to safety to a point where he could observe other humans, could watch them with a scientific manner without jeopardizing himself. The essence of someone lay like Pris lay in the manner of distance. Her main fear I could see was a closeness to other people. All right. And that's the opposite of Lincoln. Lincoln, who, who is in desperate need of other people, and that's what drives him to his psychosis, is this desperate need for people like me, like, like Louis Rosen. 
Um, so he goes back to the hotel after walking around one day, and he and he sees, you know, that Lincoln is there. He's arrived, and so they talk about what to do. and And Lincoln has ideas about how he could uh, uh, maybe get Pris back. And he says that there's this woman, Sylvia Devorka, who has kind of some political power over Barrows. And, and she might be someone you could talk to, reach out to, and, and use as a weapon, as like an ally in your struggle against Barrows. Like if you can threaten him with this woman, this Sylvia Devorka, then maybe he'd be willing to give up uh, Pris. Now, to a degree, there's something really, really creepy about Louis Rosen, especially when we think of, um, in contrast to, I guess, certain, uh, like, I guess, with the more we know about, like, the incels and their values towards women and attitude towards women, you know, there's a bit of that. Now, Louis Rosen doesn't seem to be that type. He, he seems to be able to do okay with the girls, at least that's what we're told. And something more he says at one point, like, you're just hanging out at that hotel in Seattle with, with, with girls. But nevertheless, he has this love, this deep love for Pris, and it's not, it's not reciprocated, right? And so he starts to imagine himself as a great romantic, right? To the, such a degree that he even compares himself to, to Lincoln's failed romances of his youth, and that, like I'm in the same boat as him. At one point, they, Lincoln and Rosen talk about love as like the, the, cult, like the culture of America or the, the, the ethos of America is love. And, you know, what's, what's a greater emotion than love, right? Well, of course, if love is, is not reciprocated and it, it becomes something very toxic and, and brutal, it, it, it hurts the person who feels the love, of course, but it often, often gets projected into this, this, you know, even to the level of violence against, against women. I mean, literally, what Louis is doing here is with a, he's come with a gun to threaten the boyfriend of a woman he loves and demand that she come back with him. I mean, it's, it's a violent act is what Rosen is pursuing here. And there's nothing heroic about it, despite his own delusions that it is an act of heroism. He's actually a, you know, a very, very sick man. Um, and, and that's where kind of this obsession about love perhaps gets us. I don't know if, if that's what Dick's saying here, but that, that's how I read it now. It's, it's really, when you look back at Louis' actions after reading this novel a couple of times, you really find just, just how perverted and, and sick what he's doing here is so um that's chapter 14 and that, that's all i really have time to talk about in in this episode um, that leaves us uh, chapters 15 through 18 the end of the book and uh and we'll do that in the next episode so we'll do our finale in the next episode i'll, I'll go over the final four chapters of the novel and then i'll give some of my overall feelings about uh we can build you um, but if you've read We Can Build You, um, what do you think of Louis' actions in this part of, of the novel? What do you think of, of uh, Pris's actions? What do you think of, of the nanny idea, the robotic nanny idea? We can go back to revisit that. Um, so those are some of the main themes in this part of the chapter. But it really boils down to this um, perverted sense of entitlement to to have a love reciprocated in, in, in Louis and, and how this gets perceived by others as, as a serious mental illness. But in his mind, it's almost a heroic, noble act that he's pursuing. So what do you think about that? Um, let me know. Uh, you can put your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then I'll see you next time when we'll finish up on We Can Build You. Thanks as always for listening. To be
these changes happening in me.